0: So this week at the preaching breakfast, uh, Bernie came and he asked a good question that I thought was worth kind of asking again with all of you. Why are we going through a series on conflict and peacemaking? Have you ever wanted to ask the the pastor, why are we going through this series? And I I brought this series uh, to our leadership team, church plant ministry team, uh, a year ago, so last summer. Uh, And I thought, you know, it would probably be a good idea uh, to go through this series uh, for two reasons, and now I wanted to bring it to you. Uh, the first reason is around this time, uh, the plan has been to go autonomous. So we're a, a church, we're a ministry of Emmanuel in Chelmsford. There are our mother church, our parent church, and uh, Lord willing, uh, sometime within this year, we are going to become autonomous. That's the plan for now. And any time you move out or go through a serious transition of, of change, what happens? Well, tensions arise, conflict arises. So I thought, well, maybe it makes sense to work through a series on conflict and peacemaking because we want to deal with these. Now, these could be uh, tensions that arise as we take on more ownership of our own ministry, as we feel more passionate. You know, this is, this is our thing and we're going for it. Uh, we want to work through those in a healthy, God-honoring way. And just tensions arise naturally. This is, this is not an unhealthy thing. This is something to be expected. But we want to have the tools to work through those things as they come along. The second reason is I'd really like this church to have a foundation of peacemaking, uh, of, of making peace. The, uh, the, the, the word peacemaking is really about the idea of kind of a mediator. Now, you guys have learned the word mediator through our Exodus sermon series. It's someone who comes in. And between two parties tries to make peace. Two, two, friends that are, two enemies that are, that are at odds makes them into friends. You know, we see that story in the Old Testament between God and people and in the New Testament as well. And so a peacemaker does essentially the same thing. But... In, in, in this kind of sermon series and the way we're framing it, we're thinking about conflict in the way that we interact with conflict individually. So how can we be the one that brings peace back into the, the conflict that we're engaged in? And I really hope that we as a church can, can learn to just work through our issues as they arise naturally. We're about 70 people on average. And if you were to think about like what other uh, kind of groups are made up of 70 people, you'd think, well, maybe like a really big family, right? With lots of brothers and sisters and cousins and uncles and aunts and grandmothers and grandfathers. And what do you know about families is families love each other, but they can't always, you know, get along. Sometimes they unintentionally hurt each other. And that's, that just happens. But let's learn the tools to to work through those things as they arise so that for years to come, We are known as a a church family that loves each other through thick and through thin, that works through its difficulties no matter how difficult and how hard they are. And that's really my prayer for us, and I hope that you'll kind of take on that same call and say, you know what, I want to learn how to make peace as well. And here first, so that all of my relationships, my, my friends, my coworkers, my family, so that those relationships can be blessed as well. Now, in this series, we have a, a companion book that you can uh, take, uh, you can purchase if you want, you can pick up a copy, uh, Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. Uh, I read this book, I believe it was last year, and that was really kind of what got my mind going that, hey, maybe we need to go through this topic uh, together as a church. And Ken is a lawyer who works to bring reconciliation between businesses, people, lawsuits, and he's also a Christian. He studied the scriptures looking for what the Bible has to say about peacemaking. And he really breaks it down into the four G's, uh, which are kind of four steps to the peacemaking process that we can see in the scriptures. Uh, G1, glorifying God. G2, get the log out of your eye. G3, gently restore. And four, go and be reconciled. So this week, we're going to look at the first two Gs, glorify God and go uh, and get the log out. Next week, Bernie is giving us a message on forgiveness. In a series like this, I think it's really important to hear uh, about conflict and peacemaking from a variety of speakers, from a variety of angles. So Bernie's going to come in next week as well. Now, something you might notice that's a little different about this sermon is we just went through the book of Exodus and we usually tackle like one scripture passage at a time. And we go through that and we look at this. This series is a little bit more topical in nature. So we're jumping around a little bit more. Now, uh, what we have to do when we do something like that is we have to make sure that we uh, look at the texts and learn from them in their context. So we still want to understand the scriptures as they are intended to be uh, taught to us, as, as we're intended to learn something. So I've been careful to try to do that as we go through this, and I hope that uh, you'll hold me accountable to that as well. So make sure you're looking at the scripture passages. But because we are jumping around a little bit, you might feel like we're going a little too fast, and so I encourage you you know, after the sermon, usually the, the sermon gets posted on Sunday. You can go back, you can look at the scripture passages. Uh, but also, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a, a small group uh, that deals with this book, actually, a, a shortened version led by Joe and Jenny. So I encourage you to sign up for that small group if you want to learn more about peacemaking. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it can. Uh, teach us about peace, about conflict, and how we might experience the peace you have to offer uh, in our lives. I pray that everything I say here would be true to the scriptures, would be true to your word, and that it would honor and glorify you. And I ask for your Holy Spirit to just speak to us, speak to each one of our hearts, speak to my heart, uh, and speak to your people. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to look at the first G, G1, glorify God. The Apostle Paul wrote several letters, so he, he wrote much of the New Testament, and he wrote the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and the church at Corinth is, is famous for kind of having some difficulties, right? the, 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 the people of Corinth were not uh, your, your average church member. They had issues. They had uh, sins as new Christians that they brought into the local church context, uh, and those sins tended to create divisions. Uh, it tended to create conflict. And we see the Apostle Paul addressing some of those issues in his letters, First and 2 Corinthians. And one of the issues that this new church had to wrestle with and, are, and ended up arguing over some is whether or not Christians should eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. So Corinth is a, a, a Hub of idolatry, of, of worshiping uh, false gods. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he writes, "'So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God.'" See, Paul is urging the Corinthians to have a heart attitude that says, I'm going to put God first in everything I'm doing, because uh, they were new Christians, and so they're wondering, well, how should I be living a life that glorifies and honors God? And this connects back to our Exodus sermon series, right? What was one of the, the, the first commandment that God gave his people? To honor him, to put God first, and then no idols in the second commandment. And 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 so we take that and we realize, well, this applies to all of life. I think you heard in this frontline moment, Anthony and Pat's desire to put God first as they go to the Hague, as they go to the Netherlands. And Paul, we can take this as a principle because he's applying it to the the Corinthians. He's saying, seek to glorify God in this conflict, in this, this disagreement, as you approach this topic. And so that's what we can take that we, as we approach conflict in our lives, our very first goal should be to glorify God. This can kind of be our mission in conflict and peacemaking. Now, this is, this is a big deal, right? Because your mission, your mission in life, your mission in anything directs where you head, right? It, uh, our, our mission as a church is to make, mature, and multiply followers of Jesus. That means uh, that, that, that is very different than saying, well, we just want to make Christians, right? So, if we just wanted to be a church that kind of was focused on bringing new people in and non-Christians and getting them saved, well, then maybe our mission statement would be to make uh, followers of Jesus. But we also want to do discipleship. And we want to challenge people to go out and to share their faith. So our mission impacts how we think about ministry and do ministry here as a church, right? And so if you say, you know, in my conflict, whatever I am going through, whatever I am entering into, my mission is to glorify God, that is going to change the pathway that you head down. That's going to lead to different results good results, results that ultimately we pray will glorify God, that will honor him. So what does it mean to glorify God? Sometimes we use uh, the word glory in our context, but it's not a particularly popular one. Well, there are a variety of ways to glorify God, and we're going to talk through uh, a couple of them. Well, we glorify God by honoring his reputation, now, the word for glory in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, is the Greek word doxa, doxa, which means glory, honor, reputation, or praise. Today, we're going to close the service by singing the doxology, which is kind of a, a hymn or a, 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 a recitation of praise. We are praising God, right? And so we're asking, well, how can we praise God in the midst of conflict, in the midst of disagreement, when we, when we don't understand each other, when we're at odds with each other, how can we be bringing Him praise? How can we be honoring Him? How can we be upholding His reputation? Now, when we get into conflict, what's the, the first question we ask? It's not usually, how can I honor God's reputation? It's usually, well, my reputation is on the line, right? What are people going to think of me in this moment? How are people going to look at me? What will people say about me? I think from Paul's words, we can derive a challenge, a challenge to ask ourselves, well, how does this make God look? How can I live in a way that brings honor and fame to Jesus' reputation, to, to, to Christ? How can I honor God in the midst of this? Uh, for example, you know, if your coworker sends you a harsh email and uses that little CC box to just blast the rest of your team? And it's kind of a a dishonoring. I bet none of you have ever had that happen. (laughs) So you receive this email and everyone has received it. And it says some really unkind things about you and to you. Well, if they know you're a Christian, this actually is an opportunity. Because if you're a Christian, you bear the name of Christ. This is an opportunity to put Christ first in the midst of conflict. So how might you go about doing that? Instead of firing back an even harsher defensive email, well, maybe you will go to them face-to-face and talk through the email and say, you know, there, there were some things in here that uh, I can learn from, but I thought it was a bit unfair. And, and just working through that together and doing it to honor Christ, do, doing it to honor God. What if the cashier rings you up incorrectly at Market Basket? I bet none of you have ever had that, and you just just get mad and you're just like, oh, I've already stood in this line for so long. Well, how can you address the issue calmly in a way that honors God? How about at the local sports match? Your kids are, are playing soccer, and the other team is just playing dirty, and their coach is not nice. Well, how can you handle that in a way that honors God? Not not raging on the field, not running forward. We honor God, we, we bring him glory and praise when we try to handle ourselves in conflict in a way uh, that, uh, that is gentle and that reflects the gifts of the Holy Spirit, kind, and compassionate, and patient. We glorify God by honoring his reputation. And verses 32 through 33 explain a little bit further how we can glorify God. Now, Paul continues to write to the Corinthians, and he he teaches we can glorify God by seeking what's best for others. So, in this context, these verses are really speaking about uh, eating meat sold at the market. Now, that doesn't sound super interesting, uh, but the Corinthians, uh, as new believers, they had to wrestle with buying meat at the market or going to a friend's house and eating meat because meat was often used in pagan rituals and, and kind of pagan worship. They could consecrate this meat to their God. And suddenly, if you ate that meat and, and the person who was, who was you know, offering the meat knew that it was offered to an idol— Well, suddenly, you're kind of affiliating yourself with that God. You're saying, I'm okay with this deity. I'm okay with this act of worship to this God. I accept this God. Now, there's nothing actually wrong with the meat itself, is there? But the the confusion that could happen because of eating the meat uh, is something that Paul actually warns against. He says, you know, don't eat the meat if it's going to offend the conscience of a a fellow Christian or if a non-Christian is going to get confused. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 32 through 33, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of the many, so that they may be saved." So the principle here is to put the, kind of the good of the other before our own good, before our preferences. Put, put uh, the salvation of others first. Put their walk with God before my walk with God. Uh, this is an interesting uh, issue to wrestle with because it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself well to like clear-cut, this is what I should do or this is what I should do. It really lends itself to lots of prayer and talking to God. For example, when I was in college, uh, some local churches hosted a Halo video game tournament as an outreach tool to the community. Now, Halo is this kind of shooting game, and it has wide appeal to, like, teenagers. And so a lot of teenagers went to the local movie theater uh, to play this game. Uh, But there is some some gore in it, and a family approached the leadership of the churches and said, hey, you know, maybe we don't want to play this game Uh, because it is more of a a violent game. Maybe we want to to do something else as an outreach tool. Now, if I had been in that conversation, I'm not sure I would have responded as well as the leadership did at that time. Maybe I would have pointed out this principle. Well, why aren't you seeking what's best for others? Thus, not putting it into practice in my own life, right? But I, I, I honor and respect the leadership team because they said, you know what, maybe there's something right here. We're going we're to try to do something a little bit different. Let's, let's change what we're doing to try to honor God in the midst of this potentially difficult situation. See, if we, if we earnestly seek to put others first, to put God's will first in our lives and in these difficult relationships and conflict, I think that will naturally produce some of the the healing and the peace that we are looking for. And how else can we glorify God? We can do so by imitating Jesus. Paul ends this section with a call to follow his example, right? To follow after his example as he's following after Christ's example. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says, "'Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ.'" Uh, it's our mission statement, to make mature and multiply followers of Jesus, right? That's ultimately what it is all about, following Christ. Now, the Greek word for follow here is mimite, and it means mimic. Mimite, you can kind of hear it, mimic. We're to copy the life of Christ with our own lives. We're to, uh, to follow after him, to do the things he does. And what do we see in Christ's life? We see um, uh, so much sacrifice, so much putting others first. And it's interesting, if we are to indeed follow the life of Christ, he treated different people uh, differently, uh, different situations. Remember last week from the story of the prodigal son? Uh, he was sharing this story as he was uh, eating with tax collectors and kind of the sinners, but he was also speaking it to those that uh, that were kind of the self-righteous, the Pharisees. And we see throughout Jesus' ministry, he, was, he would call out the Pharisees. He was kind of almost rude to the Pharisees, trying to get them out of their kind of self-righteousness. But he was very compassionate and kind to those that, that were sinners, that didn't have a relationship with God. So Christ treated them differently. I believe sometimes in conflict, Jesus will call us to be silent He was silent on the way to the cross. He won't call us to stand up and to get our way. He was silent on the way to the cross because he knew it would further the kingdom of God. It was all about ushering in his kingdom into this world. And he needed to make that sacrifice. Other times, Jesus will want us to speak up, won't he? He'll want us to to go to others and, and, and to talk about sin issues at great personal cost at the risk of even further conflict. So we're called to glorify God by imitating Jesus, by copying his life with our own, and that's not easy. But the good news is is that the gospel, it gives us the desire to glorify God. See, we don't do this in our own strength. We don't do this in our own power. We do it empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit speaks into our hearts and into our lives and and, and, and helps us glorify God in the midst of conflict, helps us glorify God by following after Christ, helps us glorify God by seeking what's best for others, by seeking to uphold the reputation of Jesus Christ. And it's as we look at Christ's sacrifice that we get a desire to put God first in all things. Uh, I really like the, the BBC show Sherlock, and it, it features Watson and Sherlock. And in one season, uh, uh, a, a character makes the ultimate sacrifice for Sherlock. A, a female character jumps in front of him, taking a bullet and dying for him. And Sherlock, kind of, for the rest of the season, really struggles with what do, What does he do? Like, how do, how do you how do you live after that? How do you respond? And he says something that I I thought pointed to the gospel. It says, he said, In saving my life, she conferred a value on it. It is a currency I do not know how to spend. That's a little bit like what Christ has done for us. In saving our lives on the cross, he has conferred a value on us. So how are we going to spend it? Are we going to honor Christ? It gives us that desire. It changes us from the inside out. The more we come to know all that Christ has done on our behalf, the more we want to honor him, the more we want to put him first. See, as we appreciate the gospel, how Jesus paid the ultimate price, it changes our desires. Christ put me first. Now I want to put others first. Christ died for me. I am willing to put to death some of my desires and wants and preferences. Christ gave away his rights. I'm willing to give away my rights. The gospel gives us the desire to glorify God. And honestly, it's, it's the gospel that links G1 to G2, glorifying God to getting the log out of your eye, right? Right? It's because he, he's forgiven us uh, of sin uh, that we want to glorify God. It's because he has forgiven us and that Christ has come into this world and, and died for us. The king of kings has, has died for any who puts their faith in him. It's because of that sacrifice that we can honestly look at our own sin. That we don't have to be afraid when we look at ourselves. That we can, that we can do it with courage. Courage. We glorify God through humble, Christ-dependent self-examination. Get the log out of your eye. And this brings us to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verses 41 through 42. Now this passage, it's going to sound somewhat familiar to you. It's going to sound like the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke, we actually have the Sermon on the Plain which is a little bit differently. So this is coming from the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus is preaching. And there are many differences. I encourage you to read it. But in this sermon, he gives us a parable. And this is the parable. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See Jesus is using hyperbole which is kind of like an exaggerated statement. He's not talking about literal logs and uh, literal specks of of wood, but he's using hyperbole to make a point. Don't try to fix someone else of a sin that you're also committing. Don't try to fix someone else when your problem is just as bad. If you've ever had a, a friend or a parent or you know a sibling approach you and say, you know, or maybe a coworker say, here's an issue that, that you have, here's a sin issue. I know, you know, my first response is, well, you're just as bad. <laughs> Look at your sins. You're a hypocrite, right? The Greek for hypocrite sounds like the word actually, hypocrites, and it means an actor, an actor. What do actors do? They, they put on a show, right? They act a certain way, but in reality, they're different. No matter how many different characters we watch of, a, uh, of someone on a television show or a movie, that's not actually them. That's just a character that they're putting on. We love these, these kind of celebrities, right? We think we know them, but in reality, we actually don't. We don't know who they are, who the the real person is. See, Jesus is saying in this parable that if you're someone who who acts self-righteous, but really isn't, who's struggling with the same sin, well, you shouldn't go and, you know, confront someone else in their sin. You should examine your own sin first. Now, a few verses before this, and it kind of its context Jesus says, do not judge, and you will be, not be judged. Have you ever heard kind of the, the Bible verse thrown out there? Well, the Bible says don't don't judge others, right? You shouldn't judge others. That, uh, the one that's most frequently quoted, it comes from Matthew, but this is kind of the parallel one. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. See, Jesus is warning, well, you know, don't examine the sins of others without first examining yourself. Because the standard w- to which you hold other people up to, well, that's the standard that you're held up to. So if you're going to approach someone else with this high standard, do you measure up to it? Do you, do you listen to it? Do you obey it? Now, this is, this is a warning in some sense on that kind of the negative sense. But it's also there's, there's a positive aspect. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. See, Jesus is teaching us to, to go with grace at our hearts, we go with grace in our minds, to, to go trying to, to not just condemn, but to restore, right? That's the whole point of something called church discipline. We don't, we don't just condemn others when one of us sins. We, we, we discipline in order to restore, to give grace, Jesus goes on to say, right before our verses, he says, well, the blind can't lead the blind. We have to examine our own sins first before examining the sins of others. And I don't think he's saying, well, it's wrong to correct others. I don't don't think he's saying that at all, that judgment can't be used. There are plenty of passages that, that speak to judgment being used in the local church under God's authority. We're not, uh, the principle he's given here is don't, don't be vindictive. Don't go with like a smug attitude. Don't go with like, aha, I got you now attitude. That's something that I can sin can from. See, we're not, we're not going so that we can point out someone is standing in a dark room. You're in the darkness. You're in sin. Man, that's a bummer for you. Good to know. I'm out of here. Right? We go to the dark room so that we can flip the light on, so that we can help them see, so that, so that that speck in their eye can come out. That's the goal. That's the purpose. That's a way that we can honor God, that we can bring him fame as they, as they encounter the living God. So I wanted to, to look at the types of logs, the things that do blind us in our own lives. Ken uh, Lists, two that I want us to look at. Log number one uh, is an overly sensitive attitude. See, before we confront the sins of others, before we try to take the speck out, we should make sure that they are indeed sins, right? That there's, there's a difference between a sin and a preference, Right? Sins are different than my preference or what I want or even cultural norms, things that are natural to, to over here. Well, they might be different over there. And so we want to we check our hearts and pray, you know, God, am, is, this, is this something that I really should address that's a sin against you or is this something we should let go? How do we discern this? Through prayer, through studying God's word, God's word tells us what is true and what is not. Asking for the Holy Spirit's help and recognizing that it's not our job to play the Holy Spirit, right? We don't become someone else's conscience. Every time they they do something wrong, it's not our job to call them out. Proverbs 19.11 tells us this. It says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is one's glory to overlook an offense. Overlooking sin is hard work, right? When someone actually does sin against us, we have the opportunity to overlook it. But that, that, that involves not just saying, well, I'm not gonna think about this anymore. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna walk away, and that somehow will be done. Well, sin, when we don't deal with sin, it has a way of following us. It has a way of, uh, of, of going wherever we go if we don't address it. Overlooking a sin is is taking that sin before the cross and lifting your eyes and say, I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to forgive this because I, I am looking at what Christ has done for me, how he has overlooked my sins. I'm going to lay this down, and I am going to actively choose not to pursue the consequences for this sin. That's much different than just not thinking about it. That's intentional. That is hard work. True forgiveness means not bringing it up later, right? Not holding it against someone else. The only way we can not hold on to something is if we have released it to Christ, to the cross, to the gospel. So log number one is an overly sensitive attitude. Log number two is sinful behavior. We're sometimes the cause of our own problems. I think that's a pretty fair point to make from this passage. It's much easier to say it's someone else's fault, but the the Bible time and time again says, examine your own heart. James 4.1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? See, we experience conflict because we want it. Because uh, the issue is not out there. The sin issue is not around me and everyone else but me. It starts in my own heart. And conflict has a way of just kind of opening the door to what's going on on the inside and revealing that, you know what, I am broken. I am a sinner. I need God's grace. Conflict has a way, we've already talked about this, this author points this out, of revealing our idols. What's an idol? It's anything you prioritize above God, the things that I want in this world, the things that matter to me most, the things that I'm willing to put relationships at risk over. The things that I think are important. Conflict does not put sin into our hearts, it reveals the sin that is already there. This is why we glorify God when we, we go before God and say, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna examine my heart, I'm gonna be dependent on Christ, and I'm doing this in order to honor God. See, the gospel gives us courage to confess sin. As we realize all that Christ has done before us, how he he paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, going to the cross to die, it gives us courage. If we're already forgiven by God, we can confess our sins boldly before God, saying, God, I'm sorry. Thank you for your forgiveness. And then we go to others and we confess our sins with them. Now, in your bulletin, I I gave an insert, and I hope that you'll take this home, and it's uh, kind of the seven A's of confession. And these are seven simple but challenging principles you can put into practice in your own life when you need to confess a sin to someone else. And it helps you discern, you know, should I confess this sin or not? The first one is address everyone involved. All those who are affected. Some sins, you know, if you're, you think of a sinful thought about someone else, you don't have to go and confess that to them. You confess that to God. That it didn't affect them. Avoid if, but, and maybe. We shouldn't try to excuse our way out of sin. I'm sorry, Lord, if I did something wrong. I use this one all the time. I use that in a prayer, just say, God, I'm sorry if I sinned somewhere. Well, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal your sin to you so that you can address it specifically. And that's the third one, specific, admit specifically. Growing up, my parents wouldn't let us just say, I'm sorry. We had to say, I apologize for, and then fill in the blank. (laughs) Couldn't get off that light. Who do you perhaps need to say, you know what, I apologize for this, this, and this. I have done these things. These things have added to the difficulty of this situation. Acknowledge the hurt. I'm sorry if I hurt you. No, I I did hurt you. I'm sorry. Accept the consequences. I'm really sorry that I hurt you. Let me make it up to you by by doing something, by changing my behavior, number six. And number seven, ask for forgiveness. The last one doesn't say receive forgiveness. It says ask for forgiveness. Our, our job ends at asking, showing our repentance and asking. It might, someone else might not be ready to grant you forgiveness in this conflict. So we give that to God. As we experience forgiveness from Christ and forgiveness from those we've hurt, The long-term fix is not found in our behavior, but in a changed heart. The gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, has the ability to change our hearts. Our big idea is we glorify God through humble, Christ-dependent self-examination. We glorify God through humble, Christ-dependent self-examination. I I wanted to close with a a story by uh, by Ken Sandy and his book that he wrote. I actually tried to use this illustration before, and I got some of the details wrong, so I'm just admitting my sin specifically uh, right now. Uh, So I'm going to read it today so that I don't mess up any of the details. And if you just listen, the story time as we close, uh, I'll, I'll read it to you. It's about Ted. Ted worked for a government agency. As a new believer, he was excited about his salvation and wanted to have a positive witness for Christ among his co-workers. Ted and his supervisor, Joan, had never gotten along well, partially because Ted continually tried to tell her how to run her department. His enthusiasm for Christ provoked her further. As her frustration toward Ted increased, Joan gave him particularly difficult work assignments, even though she knew he had a back problem. Eventually, he injured his back and had to leave work for several months. Although he received some disability benefits, Ted lost several thousand dollars due to missed wages and additional medical expenses. As a result, he filed a lawsuit against Joan and the agency. By the time Ted came to see me, he, uh, Ken Sandy, he had returned to work and the lawsuit was moving slowly through the court system. "'During our conversation, Ted and I identified several ways "'he had contributed to the conflict with Joan. "'Seeing his own fault more clearly, "'Ted began to consider settling the lawsuit "'by accepting the $5,000 the agency had offered him "'a few days earlier. "'Although his damages exceeded that amount, "'his attorney advised him to accept the settlement. "'On the other hand, several of Ted's friends "'were encouraging him to demand more money "'or continue the litigation.' A few days later, Ted surprised me by saying that he was going to drop his lawsuit without accepting the settlement offer. The more he had reflected on his own fault in the matter, the less comfortable he felt about accepting money from the agency. At the same time, he had concluded that laying down his right to restitution would be an effective way to demonstrate the mercy and forgiveness that he himself had received from God. The next morning, Ted went to talk with Joan. He admitted that he had been disrespectful, arrogant, and rude, and he asked for her forgiveness. Joan seemed suspicious of his motives and said little in response. Ted went on to explain that he had forgiven her for ordering him to move the heavy boxes and that he was dropping his lawsuit. Finally, he said he hoped that they could start over in their relationship and learn to work together in the future. More suspicious than ever, Joan asked why he was doing this. He replied, I became a Christian a year ago, and God is slowly helping me to face up to a lot of my faults, including those that contributed to the problems between you and me. God has also shown me his love and forgiveness for me is absolutely free, and I can do nothing to earn or deserve it. Since he has done that for me, I decided I wanted to act the same way towards you. Amazed by his answer, Joan mumbled something like, Oh, I see. I see. Well, let's let bygones be bygones. Thanks for coming in. Although Joan's response wasn't quite what Ted had hoped for, he walked out of her office knowing that God had forgiven him and that he had at least given Joan a glimpse of that forgiveness. Ted soon discovered that Joan was telling others about their meeting. The next day, a union representative who had heartily supported the lawsuit against Joan confronted Ted and asked whether he had really dropped the lawsuit. When Ted said yes, the man said, Is it true that you did it because you're a Christian? Ted again said yes, and the man's scowl turned to a look of puzzlement. As the man walked away, Ted heard him say to a bystander, Well, that's the first time I've ever seen a Christian's faith cost him anything. Like ripples in a pond, word of Ted's actions spread throughout the department. A few days later, two co-workers asked to meet with him over lunch once a week to discuss the Bible. Later, other coworkers asked him questions about his faith. For the first time since Ted's conversion, he felt he was really helping people to learn about God's love. Although Joan continued to treat Ted rudely at times, he learned to submit to her authority and to use her provocations as further opportunity to show God's work in his life. When she was replaced a few months later, there was no doubt in Ted's mind who had arranged for him to have a more pleasant and supportive boss. Three years later, I asked Ted whether he regretted his decision to give up the settlement. No, he replied, that was the best $5,000 I ever spent. God used those events to bring several people to Christ. He also helped me to overcome some major sins in my life. I only wish I had settled it more quickly. The scriptures say to to glorify God in all things, to put him first, and we, we do that in conflict. And then to examine our own hearts, our own lives to, to, lives, to get the log out of our own eyes. We glorify God through humble, Christ-dependent self-examination. We do this through the gospel, through the Holy Spirit speaking to us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you sent your son to die for our sins and to experience the conflict to experience the, 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 the stain of sin, the consequence of sin that we deserve. Thank you for Easter and that we got to celebrate his resurrection last week. Lord, we're celebrating it again. We're celebrating the resurrection of Christ Jesus. I pray that we would go out of here trying to honor you in our relationships, in our conflict. Lord, we pray for the offering, that we would use it wisely as a church, that, that we would use it to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.